0: Uh, there is an ugly new phenomenon that's spreading across our country, according to one news journalist. She calls it prayer shaming, prayer shaming. She says it kicked off about a month ago, uh, shortly after the, that, that couple, that terrorist couple killed 14 people in San Bernardino. Uh, various leaders around the country were expressing their condolences, their prayers, support for the victim's families, and it was that mention of prayer that began to get a hostile response. Uh, one, one news commentator said prayer is meaningless. Another news source said prayer is nothing but hiding behind God. Uh, The New York Daily News ran a front-page article including some of the prayers of prominent people, but the the article was a slam on prayer. The title of the article was, God Isn't Fixing This, okay? Don't go to God, because God isn't fixing this. Wow, prayer shaming. Admit that you pray about the tragedies in our world today, and you are bound to run into some nasty ridicule. Now, now, I understand that, that if our prayers are are not accompanied by action, they they may sound hollow. But it used to be that prayer itself was considered to be an action. In fact, it was foundational to other actions. Prayer used to be considered plan A. That's where you begin. You, you pray about something. All the way back in 1775... George Washington and the Continental Congress called upon the colonies to pray, pray for God's wisdom as we formed a new nation. 1863, Abraham Lincoln called for a day of fasting and prayer that God would put an end to the Civil War and to slavery. 1944, as troops are landing in Normandy, storming the beaches to free Europe from Nazism. FDR gets a national radio and leads the country in prayer. In fact, you ought to Google his prayer. It, it's this lengthy, power-packed prayer from the president of the United States. 1952, Harry Truman declares an annual day of prayer. See, there, there have been 144 presidential calls to prayer over the years. Now you're thinking, oh, this is going to be a sermon about prayer. Actually, it's not. Uh, this is a sermon to launch a six-part series we're calling Back to Plan A, but I'm using prayer simply as an opening illustration. It's an example of something that used to be valued in our culture. You know, prayer used to be a Plan A activity, but not anymore. You know, prayer, prayer shamers are openly mocking people who pray. They're saying, save your breath, it's worthless. Our culture is moving further and further away from the value of something like prayer. Well, this series is going to address several critical issues where our culture has been drifting further and further away from biblical values. And we're going to take a look at what God's word has to say about these values. What is God's plan A? What is God's countercultural wisdom? And we're going to be challenging those of us who are Christ followers to become advocates, to become promoters of God's plan A. How can we convince people in a winsome way, underscore winsome, how can we convince people that plans B, C, D, and so on, they're not working, they're a disaster? How can we persuade people to give God's plan A a try? I mean, here, here are the issues we're going to cover in, in the next several weeks. We're going to talk about materialism. Uh, we're, we're going to talk about racism on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. You know, the, the, the weekend after Sanctity of Life Week, we're going to talk about abortion. We're going to talk about sexual immorality in its various forms in our culture today. We're going to talk about pornography, pornography which is an epidemic. Do we know what God's word says, what plan A is with respect to these matters? Do we know, do we know why plan A is life giving as opposed to our, our, our culture's alternative plans? Are we willing to be ridiculed for advocating the plan A positions? Are we prepared to walk upstream in a downstream world? That's what I'm calling this introductory sermon today walking upstream in a downstream world. Now, our text for today is 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you brought your Bible with you, would you turn 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter, 1 Peter's toward the end of your New Testament, and fill in your outline, if you would, as we go, because these are the steps that God is gonna challenge us to take. So if we're determined to follow Jesus Christ in today's culture, if we're determined to live out biblical values, you know to allow god's word to shape our lives then uh, peter has three words of advice for us here's number 1 uh, peter says in this passage we're going to be looking at anticipate opposition anticipate opposition if your bible's open to 1 peter chapter 3 let's begin at verse 13 peter says who's going to harm you if you're eager to do what is good but even if you should suffer for doing what is right you are blessed Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. We're going to stop right there in the middle of verse 15. Peter begins the passage with a question. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? That's a rhetorical question. You know, the the obvious answer is, well, nobody should, right? Right. Now, now we know from this question, we have a relative sense of the dating of the epistle of 1 Peter. We know that it wasn't written after AD 64. How do we know that? Because something happened in AD 64. That's when the wicked emperor Nero began to persecute and torture Christ followers. So, if Peter had been writing this after AD 64 and he had posed the question, so who's going to harm you for doing good? Everybody would have answered in unison, Nero, that's who. So obviously, this has been written before Nero's persecutions began. However, some sort of opposition to believers was beginning to to, to take shape. And that seems obvious from the opening line of verse 14. Peter says, even if you should suffer for what is right. In other words, it's possible that you will have to suffer in some way for what is right. So so on the one hand, Nero-type persecution was not yet apparent. On the other hand, some sort of opposition to Christ followers was beginning to pop up. You know, Christ followers were beginning to be marginalized, ridiculed, discriminated against. I mean, this historical context for 1 Peter, it sounds a bit like the situation in American culture today. See, on the one hand, following Jesus, holding to biblical values, does not yet incur out-and-out persecution. And so we should be careful not to play the victim card. You know, we should be careful not to constantly protest that we are under attack from those who oppose our values. That sounds a lot like some of the fundraising letters I get from various Christian organizations. Not helpful language. On the other hand, we should anticipate some level of opposition to our beliefs, to our values. Peter says, even if you do suffer for what is right. In in, in other words, it's going to happen in some way, shape, or form. It happened to Brendan Eich. Uh, Brendan was the founder of Mozilla, a software company. Back in 2008, he made a $1,000 contribution to Proposition 8 8 in California. Proposition 8 was a a ballot initiative to support traditional marriage. Okay, a biblical marriage. Marriage meaning a relationship between one man and one woman for life. Okay, by the way, 52% of Californians voted for Proposition 8. Uh, Fast forward to the year 2014. He was about to be named, Brendan Eich was about to be named the CEO of Mozilla. But when when word got out, gay rights activists stirred up a protest, and the protest was so strong and so loud loud that he eventually resigned from Mozilla. The company that he founded was forced to resign. And Mozilla issued a statement commending those who had protested for having exercised their their freedom of speech. What about Brendan Eich's freedom of speech, Right? Here's a guy who lost his job, not because of incompetency, he lost it because he dared to support biblical values, traditional marriage. Or another instance I'm sure you're familiar with, there's Hobby Lobby, the craft store chain, 13,000 employees across the country. When the government passed the Affordable Care Act, Hobby Lobby was put in a difficult position because the Affordable Care Act requires that employers supply their their, their workers with comprehensive contraception coverage. Now, that means that you, you you also need to apply drugs that will induce an abortion after a woman has conceived, if, if she wants them. And the owner of Hobby Lobby happens to be a Christ follower and said, oh, I can't do that. That run counters to my biblical values. The Bible teaches that life begins at conception, that, that God makes us, weaves us together in our mother's womb, as David says in Psalm 139. So Hobby Lobby was slapped with a fine, a 1.3 million dollars a day fine how about that and if you followed it the case went all the way to the supreme court where fortunately hobby lobby won but they won 5 to 4 narrowly won that particular case if you suffer for doing what is right peter says in other words it's you know it is going to happen and it seems to be happening more and more. And it's not just at a corporate level where a CEO loses his job for supporting traditional marriage or a company is threatened with a mega fine because its owner believes that life begins at conception. I mean, this happens at a personal level. If you've begun to follow Jesus and that has led to some lifestyle changes for you, I'd be willing to bet that you've got friends, you've got workmates who have ridiculed your new behaviors. I mean, in the, in the next chapter of, of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, he addresses this. In fact, the, the entire epistle of 1 Peter is all about, you know, the, the persecution that Christ's followers are going to face, the ridicule, the, the mocking, and so on. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3... You know, he addresses those who, who, who come out of non-Christian backgrounds and so they no longer do some of the sinful stuff they used to do. And he says in verse 3, your friends are surprised that you don't join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. you know, maybe this has happened to you. You, know, you ever been given a hard time because you no longer do what everybody else is doing? Russell Moore is a very articulate spokesman for the Christian faith. He's got uh, articles in national newspapers. He's occasionally on secular talk shows. He's written an excellent book called Onward, Engaging Culture Without Losing the Gospel. By the way, I'm going to be recommending several books that, that would be uh, worth picking up. They're going to be available at Resource at our four campuses. In this book, Russell Moore writes about a conversation that he had with a bright young woman who questioned his sexual values, his ethics. And in fact, she laughed out loud at his viewpoint as they talked. She said, Moore writes, she said, I was the first person she'd ever actually met in real life who thought that marriage could only happen with the union of a man to a woman. What a crazy idea. And she, she said that if she ever met anyone who had seen someone for more than three or four weeks without having sex, she would not first assume that this person had some sort of religious conviction, but rather that this person must bear the psychological scars of some sort of traumatic abuse. And she followed this up by saying, so, so do you see how strange what you're saying sounds to us, to those of us out here in normal America? Now, what especially struck Russell Moore about this conversation was that last phrase, normal America. Normal America. I mean, here he was espousing traditional Judeo-Christian sexual values that have been respected, even when not followed, have been respected by Americans for centuries. But this young woman was informing him that these biblical values no longer represent normal America and France she's absolutely right she's absolutely right yeah I I love the way though that the conversation ended Uh, this woman said to Moore she said seriously do you know how strange your viewpoint sounds to me and Moore smiled at her and he replied yes I I know it sounds strange to me too you know in light of where our, our culture's gone but what you should know is, we believe, we Christ followers believe in even stranger things than that. We believe a previously dead man's going to show up in the sky on a horse. Love it. You know, if you think our sexual ethics are strange, I mean, we got some really crazy notions about Jesus' return. Anticipate opposition. So if you want to be a Christ follower, And I appeal especially to those of you who are younger. I appeal especially to those of you who are new to following Jesus. If you want to live your life as shaped by God's word, then just anticipate opposition. You know, more and more of it as our culture drifts further and further away from biblical values. A friend of mine who's been a mentor... He's a retired president of a Christian college. He's found of sane, fond of saying, we're no longer the home team. Okay, we're no longer the home team. Christ followers used to be cheered for their moral values as, as if we were the home team. But we're no longer cheered, my friend says. We are jeered. We're looked at as outsiders. We're seen as the visiting team. Like it's heckled. But, but Peter says... That shouldn't discourage us. It it shouldn't shut us up. Go back to the text, verse 14. You know, After he says that we may suffer, even if you do suffer, even if there's some, some ridicule, some marginalization, some discrimination for adhering to biblical values, even if you're mocked for doing what God's word says is right, what's the next thing he says? Even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are, say it with me, blessed. You are blessed. Peter's asking, well, whose approval do you want? Whose blessing do you want? You want the world's blessing or do you want God's blessing? So what if the world mocks you? So so what if the world thinks you're strange because you're not sleeping with your boyfriend? Or because you turn aside when porn is passed around on somebody's iPhone. Or because you no longer get drunk at parties. Or because you give away huge chunks of money. I mean, every, every month you give a portion of your paycheck to meeting the needs of the poor, to church concerns. You know, who cares if people think you're strange because you now express concern among your white suburban friends that the lives of minorities matter, that the lives of immigrants matter. You know, these are are positions that may get you others' disapproval. But hang in there, Peter says, because God's going to bless you. And and, and by the way, this is one of the major points that we're going to be making throughout this series. The, The reason that we hang on to plan A, the reason we hang on to biblical values... Friends, the, the reason we want to point others back to plan A is not to win some sort of culture war. It's because we, we believe that those who live according to plan A are blessed by God, and that's what we want for our lives. We want to be blessed, and we want others, even those who oppose our biblical values, we want them to come to the place where they experience God's blessing. You get it? Good. Good. Now, if we'll keep that constantly in mind, that God blesses people who do what's right. We we won't be intimidated by people who oppose our biblical values. Intimidated? God's going to bless us. You know, we won't let their ridicule silence us. You know, look, look at the last line of verse 14 and the first line of verse 15. Peter says, Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere or fear Christ as Lord. You know, i got to believe that as as Peter penned those words in this epistle, he was thinking back to an incident in his early uh, years of following Jesus. Shortly after Jesus had been crucified, raised from the dead, ascended back to heaven, Peter and his buddies, they're out on the streets of Jerusalem spreading the good news about Christ. And, and this is a this is a city that had turned against Jesus just weeks earlier and put him to death on a cross. And Peter's talking up Jesus, and he's healing people in Jesus' name, which gets him in trouble with the local authorities. They haul him in, and they say, you know, you got to stop doing this. And they don't put it too delicately. They say, if you can't stop talking about Jesus, something really, really bad is going to happen to you. And I love Peter's response. Acts chapter three, chapter four, if you've not read this story, let me paraphrase. Peter says, hey, you guys are you're posing a dilemma for me because you're saying don't talk about Jesus. And on the other hand, Jesus short, shortly before he left the planet, he said I should spread the word concerning him. So like, uh, who am I going to obey? I think I'll go with Jesus. I think I'll revere Jesus, not you guys. You know, who do we fear? David Platt has written another book. Love you all to read this one. In fact, this could be the textbook for this series. Uh, in fact, anything that David Platt writes is worth reading. A young leader from the South, he's written a book called Counterculture. And in his book, he raises the question as to whether even when we're even when we're defending biblical values, do we tend to gravitate toward those that we're most comfortable with that won't get us into any sort of trouble? Let me read you a quote from his book. He says, On popular issues like poverty and sex slavery, where Christians are likely to be applauded for our social action, we're quick to stand up and speak out. Yet on controversial issues like homosexuality and abortion, where Christians are likely to be criticized for our involvement, we're content to sit down and stay quiet. It's as if we've decided to pick and choose which social issues we'll contest and which we'll concede. And our picking and choosing normally revolves around, now listen to this, normally revolves around what is most comfortable and least costly for us in our culture. You know, when when I read that, I thought to myself, is this true of me? You know, several times a year, Sue and I, we pull our little wagon up and down our street collecting canned goods for the local food pantry. And i got to tell you, our neighbors are effusive in their praise for us. You guys are so cool. This is such a great value, out collecting canned goods for the poor. You're wonderful. Thank you for keeping this value in front of us. And there have been times when I've wondered, what if they knew about some of the other biblical godly values I hold, the ones that aren't so popular? You know, would they be effusively praising me? Do do I worry more about their approval than I worry about God's approval? Do I revere Christ as Lord? Yeah, I've taken a long time to make this, this first point: anticipate opposition. But that's because I'm concerned that those of us who are Christ followers often don't anticipate opposition. You know, we don't we don't realize things have changed. The the new normal is we are not the home team. We're not friends. And if you fail to understand that, you're, you're bound to react in one of two extreme ways. On the one hand, when you encounter opposition or or around the water cooler at work or the cafeteria table in the high school, people are voicing their objection to biblical values. Uh, At one extreme, you're tempted to just be quiet, allow your allegiance to Jesus and God's word just to, you know, go unstated. Don't rock the boat. Don't say anything. At the other extreme, if you're surprised by the opposition, you haven't anticipated it, you're not willing to acknowledge this is the new normal, you might get angry when biblical values are challenged. You might determine that you're going to become a culture warrior who takes America back. Really. Bible never talks like that. Peter doesn't talk like that. In fact, that leads us to point number two. Okay, what does Peter tell us to do? Number two, he says, answer respectfully. Answer respectfully. Go back to the text. We left off at the middle of verse 15. Let me pick it up there. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter's second point is this, answer respectfully. Answer respectfully. Let me park on each of the words in this two-word directive. We'll start with the word answer. Look again at verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone. Bible scholars tell us that that phrase, give an answer, came from the legal world of Peter's day. This was the action of a defense attorney. A defense attorney, when accusations were made against his client, the the defense attorney had to be prepared to respond, prepared to rebut, prepared to contradict. Peter's saying here that Christ followers similarly ought to be ready to defend their faith, verse 15. Now, he's talking specifically in this verse about our readiness to define the hope that we have in Christ. You see that? In other words, be prepared to explain to people your, your salvation. You know, how your hope is in Christ, how he has promised you when you surrender your life to him to give you forgiveness and begin to remake you from the inside out and that one day he'll come again and he'll reign over a new heaven and new earth and you'll be there with him having eternal life. Peter says, are, are you prepared? Can you explain that to somebody else convincingly? You know, can you describe salvation and how to surrender to Jesus to somebody else? By the way, if you're thinking, I'm not sure I could do that. Okay, this is what our everyday evangelism course is for. And the next time we offer it is in February. If you've not been through everyday evangelism, I encourage you to go. You know, Peter says, we, we, you know, we need to provide answers to people who have questions about salvation, about our hope in Christ. But in the larger context of this passage, Peter is not only talking about giving people answers about salvation, he's also talking about how we respond to their broader objections. You know, when they object to our values, when they, they object to how we live, when they object to our standards of right and wrong. Peter doesn't say we should be quiet about these things. I mean, following Jesus is not some private matter that we're to keep to ourselves if you have your Bible in front of you and you're open to verse 15 here, circle two words, always and everyone. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone. Christ followers should always have something wise to say about our godly values to everyone. One of the reasons we're doing this series, back to plan A, you know, and we're covering issues like you know, racism and abortion and sexual immorality and so on, is to provide you with answers because Peter says you you ought to have them at your fingertips. So we want you to know, what does God's word say about these things? By the way, this is why this is such an important series as well. If you're going to read a good book that goes with any series, I'd recommend this series be the one you you pick up a book at, at resource. I've mentioned two books already You know, one of those books is by Russell Moore called Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. Uh, Then the second book I mentioned, Counterculture, by David Platt, excellent book. A third book I'd recommend as well is called Prepare, Living Your Faith in an Increasingly Hostile Culture. It's, It's important for us, like skilled attorneys, to have good answers for those who object to our biblical values however. However, we're to provide those answers respectfully. Respectfully. You know, one one Bible scholar writing about this passage reminds us that giving an answer is the action of a defense attorney, not a prosecuting attorney. Okay, what does a prosecuting attorney want to do? He, He wants to nail the bad guy's hide to the barn door, right? He, he wants to, to ensure that this guy is convicted of wrongdoing. But Peter doesn't say we're to be prosecuting attorneys. He says we're to be defense attorneys. This Bible scholar goes on to say when we speak of sin, when we warn of, of judgment, it's in order to see persons made right with God, not in order to vent our spleens. Well put. I like, I like that. We're, we're not prosecuting attorneys. We're not culture warriors. We're not attacking people who attack us. We're defense attorneys. We, we want to we see people saved for all eternity. And that requires that we answer with respect. Now, that's one of two descriptive words that Peter uses in the closing line of verse 15. What's the other one? He says we're to answer people with gentleness and respect. We're not trying to overpower people with the force of our arguments. Gentleness. We're just trusting the Holy Spirit of God to work in their hearts and quietly convince them of the truth. You know, the Apostle Paul says something similar to what uh, Timothy is saying here in 1 Peter 3. Uh, Paul says it to a young protege of his named Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, Paul says, And the Lord's servant, okay, all of us who are Christ followers, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they'll come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. You hear what Paul's saying? He's saying people who oppose our biblical values, they're not the enemy. Who's the enemy, friends? Call it out. Satan Satan is the enemy. And so we're on a rescue mission. We're not counterattacking people. We want to see them saved, come to know God, answer respectfully. I don't know if you've ever heard of Dan Cathy. Uh, Dan is the president and COO of Chick-fil-A. I bet you heard of Chick-fil-A. How many heard of Chick-fil-A? Yeah, I figured. Here's another guy I want to introduce you to. His name is Shane Winmark. Uh, Shane Winmeyer is a uh, 40-something-year-old gay activist. Uh, he is the founder and the uh, executive director of an organization called Campus Pride. They are the largest LGBT organization on college campuses around the country. And several years ago, uh, Campus Pride started a campaign against Chick-fil-A. You might remember this. You know, Chick-fil-A is, is famous for giving money away to charities. Uh, Dan Cathy's a Christ follower. And so some of the charities they've given money to support traditional biblical marriage. So Shane Windemar and his troops, uh, they were leading this charge against Chick-fil-A. So Dan Cathy calls Shane on the phone. And and he says to Shane, you know, because Shane's wondering, what in the world is this guy calling to ring me out, telling me to stop my protest? What? And Dan Cathy explains to Shane, I'm calling because I want to be friends. And now Shane's really suspicious. (laughs) Like, what is this guy up to? But they talk. They talk for over an hour. And they have subsequent uh, phone calls, start texting each other, start meeting each other for coffee and meals. And they, they begin a friendship. In fact, Shane writes about this friendship in the Huffington Post. Th- this is what he says. He says, throughout the conversations, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life. He wanted to know uh, about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. Now, in return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ, just, not just a Christian, Dan expressed sincere regret, genuine sadness when he heard of gay people being treated unkindly. But he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. I mean, Don't miss this. Dan, Dan Cathy is not compromising his Christian convictions. He, he's not giving up for one minute his commitment to a biblical view of marriage. And he's letting Shane know this but he's talking with gentleness and respect. So so much so that when Shane writes this article for the Huffington Post, you know know what he calls it? He calls it, my coming out as a friend of Dan Cathy. (laughs) And he he posts a picture, this is a few years ago now, posts a picture of he and Dan Cathy in Dan Cathy's uh, private booth at the Chick-fil-A bowl game on New Year's Eve. Answer respectfully. Let me throw in a side note here. It's important to speak respectfully about biblical values, not only to people who are not Christ followers, but also to people who are Christ followers, but who may not share our intensity for certain issues. Let's say, for example, that you feel really, really, really strongly about caring for the poor. Now, if you do, you're probably involved in the community impact ministries of Christ Community Church where we're out and about working with two dozen uh, organizations. In, in our communities, homeless shelters and crisis pregnancy centers and, and, and so on. You, you care about this deeply and you want everybody to care about it. How do you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ who don't share your intensity for this issue, even though they may be serving in some other area of the church? Are they losers? You know, Are they people you're just waiting to get with it? You know, when are you going to understand there's nothing more important than serving the poor? Or perhaps your hot button is, is racism. Or maybe it's abortion. Are, are these important matters? Of course these are important matters. But do we consider them as if they're all that matters? And that anybody who's not as involved as we are in a particular battle, well, they're just AWOL. Let me say, if you feel strongly about one of the issues that we cover over the next few weeks and, and you wish that more Christ followers felt strongly about that particular issue, then learn to share your concern with gentleness and respect. Yeah, I really get tired of Christians beating up on Christians on some of these issues. Gentleness and respect. You you catch more flies, the old adage says, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Right. Now, one last thought from 1 Peter 3 about answering with respect. Look look at verse 16. Peter warns uh, warns us that in addition to defending biblical values with words that are gentle and respectful, we, we also need to be sure that our behavior is backing up our words. Verse 16, he says, keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ, your good behavior in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. What is the biggest complaint that outsiders level against Christians? What is it? We're all a bunch of hypocrites. So, friends, if we're going to be promoting God's plan A in our culture... We'd better be backing it up with our lives. You know, if we say we're against materialism, then people ought to be able to look at us and see extravagant generosity. Is that what they see? You know, if if we want to say that we're against racism, people ought to be able to look at us and see rich friendships that cross racial lines. If we want to say we're against abortion, then they ought to see people who care about unwed moms, who care about unwanted children. What are we doing about unwanted children? What are we doing about foster care, safe families, so on? You know, if we want to say that we're against sex outside of marriage, then people ought to be able to hear from Christian married couples that they're enjoying a robust sexual life within marriage. Can I get an Amen. You guys disappoint me. <laughs> I thought I had the husbands in that one. I mean, let, let, let's show, show people that God's plan A is far superior to any alternative. Let's answer respectfully with our lives as well as with our words. Anticipate opposition. Answer respectfully. Third and finally, align with Christ. Let me read the last verse of the text, verse 18. For Christ also suffered. Okay, you think you suffer? Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. See, when it comes to walking upstream in a downstream world when it comes to holding firm to biblical values, when it comes to suffering abuse in order to follow God. Peter says we have a role model whose example ought to encourage us to keep on keeping on. Who is that role model? Call it out. It's Jesus, Jesus Christ. Now, there, there are two things I want us to note about Jesus' example from this verse 18. First, Jesus' suffering was redemptive. You know, Peter says, verse 18, that Christ suffered for sins. He's referring to his death on the cross to bring you to God. See, there was a wall between God and us, the wall of our sin. Jesus had to die to pay sin's penalty for that wall to come down, to bring us to God. That's what I mean by, uh, Peter means by saying that his suffering's redemptive. Now, I'm not about to suggest that when we suffer abuse or we suffer uh, ridicule for our biblical values that our suffering somehow redeems people in the same way that Jesus' death on the cross redeems people. No, Jesus is the only redeemer. He's the only savior. However, when we live out our biblical values, when we live out God's plan A in the face of cultural harassment, it does have a way of drawing people to God. Now, now, this is a bit counterintuitive, so, so follow my argument carefully. See, what our tuition tell, intuition tells us is this. If we want to attract people to God, then we should be as agreeable with them as we possibly can be. I mean, l- let's not say anything. Let's not do anything that will offend them, that will turn them off. So, we, we don't want to be against anything. We don't want to be against gay marriage. Don't want to be against pro-choice, don't want to be against, don't want to be against anything because people won't be interested in our Jesus or in our church if we beat the drum for biblical values. Really? Well, that's what our intuition tells us, but the truth of the matter is that the churches which are growing in our country today, for the most part, are churches that are teaching the Bible without compromise. And and listen, the churches that are muting or twisting what the Bible says in order to be in sync with the culture, they're the churches that are dying today. You know, Russell Moore, who wrote that book, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, he takes a, a jab at mainline churches that are no longer teaching biblical values. Some of you perhaps came from one of those mainline denominational churches. You know, this is what Moore says. He says, Protestant liberalism is deader than Henry VIII. If adapting to culture were the key to ecclesial success, he's talking about church growth. If adapting to the culture were the key to church growth, then uh, where are the Presbyterian church planting movements or the Unitarian megachurches? My apologies to those of you who come from a Presbyterian or or Unitarian background, but what what he's saying is in many of those mainline denominations where they've muted the Bible in order to be in sync with the culture, they're dying. So so if if you're worried that Christ's community church might turn people away with a series like the one we're beginning today, can't we just avoid these controversial issues? The reality is just the opposite. You know, our, our, our lives and our church, listen, friends, our lives and our church are so much more attractive, so much more redemptive when we're calling people to back to plan A instead of offering the same plan that the world is offering them, which doesn't work. Second thing I want you to note about Jesus' example in verse 18 is, is that his suffering was victorious. Yes, he was put to death and for a couple of days it looked as if the bad guys had won. But as Peter points out at the close of this verse, Jesus was raised victoriously over the grave. And so friends, those who choose to follow Christ, those who choose to live according to to biblical values, it may seem to us at times as if we're becoming a smaller and smaller minority that the bad guys are winning. But we've read the end of the story, right? We we, we know how it ends. We know who ultimately wins. And it's those who are aligned with Christ. I want to tell you before we move into communion, a uh, closing story. One of my favorite stories about Elisha, the prophet, taken from 2 Kings chapter 6. And as I tell you the story, I'm going to welcome our worship teams onto the stages across our campuses. We're going to conclude today's service with a, just a great time of communion. Elisha, prophet of God, now back in the day, God's people, Israel, they're under attack from Aram, the nation of Aram, also called Syria. Uh, But but there's there's a problem. Every time the king of Aram sends troops out to attack Israel, God tells the prophet Elisha where those enemy troops are, and Elisha feeds the word to the king of Israel, and they're able to counterattack. So this is driving the king of Aram crazy, and and he says, okay, who's the fink in the group? Who's the snitch? I mean, there's got to be an Israelite spy in our midst giving us away. And one one of his officers says, it's not an Israelite spy, it's an Israelite prophet. It's a dude named Elisha. He's the one who keeps giving away our location to the king of Israel. So the king of Aram says, well, where does this Elisha live? And he sends troops, he sends armed forces, mounted cavalry to the city where Elisha lives to do him in. And that that morning, Elisha and his servant get get up and his servant looks out the window and it's, oh my goodness, the city is surrounded by Aramean troops. And he's sure that his boss, Elisha, is dead meat. And Elisha looks out and he says, don't worry. He says, those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. Servant has no idea what he's talking about. What do you mean? And so Elisha has to pray. God opened his eyes. And his eyes are open, and what does he see? Have you ever read this story? He sees God's heavenly army, which can't be perceived with the naked eye. He sees flaming chariots and foot soldiers and cavalry. And and there's so many, I mean, they so far outnumber the Arameans. They're spread through every valley and hill as far as the eye can see, the eye of faith. If it seems like in our culture today, if you feel like more and more of of a minority, and that the, you know, you pick up the newspaper and you read it, and another traditional value goes down, or you walk away from a confrontation with others at work or school, and you've been the only one speaking up for for Christ or a biblical value in your world, what gives? Are we losing? my prayer for you is that God will open your eye of faith and you'll see greater are those who are with us than those who are with them. Jesus is king. And one day he will reign over a new heaven and a new earth. And those who surrender their lives to him in this world, who walk with him in this world, who live according to his word in this world, will reign with him forever and ever. Yeah, let me pray. Lord God, as we across four campuses, prepare to remember your son's death on our behalf that didn't end with death, that ended with a victory over the grave so that he can offer us forgiveness and new life today. We pray that you would remind us if we follow you, we're on the winning team. That as we move into our culture, it might be as ambassadors, representatives of Jesus not culture warriors, but defense attorneys, but because we care about people, because we recognize that the blessing of God falls on those who live according to his standards. And so that's what we want for our lives and for their lives. Lord, we're about to begin a new year. And so as we come to your table, may we be free to confess our sins, God, if the holiday season has allowed us to get off of familiar routines of walking with you. If we've strayed, I pray that this would be a time when you bring us back and fire us up once again to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. It's in his name we pray. Amen.